Welcome to That's All, a weekly debrief about anything and everything happening in fashion and pop culture with Cozzy and M. I'm Cozzy. And I'm M. And welcome to this week. There is a lot going on. I love that every week we're like, there's a lot on and there genuinely is like... Every week we have a list of just a million things that we want to talk about and then we choose a couple. And it's so hard to pin down. It's so hard to do that. But we do. We manage to do it. We manage. God gives his hardest battles to his best soldiers <laughs> and that's who we are. To his prettiest angels. Anyways, my wreck this week is an article. The Cut published a piece called What is Air One? The Strange History of the LA Cult Grocer. And it sounds a little bit boring, especially if you don't know what Air One is. But mm. basically it's like a clean organic wellness aligned grocery store that started in LA so it's super famous and it's kind of like a lifestyle for people super popular amongst celebrities influencers and people who can afford it and like LA people who just faff around and don't really do anything they just like go to Erewhon basically it is very very LA and it's known for selling kind of bizarre ingredients and $18 smoothies inspired by Hayley Bieber Bell Hadid. Everything's really expensive. There's no like concept of the cost of living crisis. Exactly. For Erewhon. Which feels so LA to begin with. Yeah. It's like nothing ever touches. And we were saying before, I'm like, I don't understand how like everyone in LA seems to either like A, work in the film industry or B, not have jobs. I'm like, what's the economy? How does it work there? What are they doing? It's like a video game. Nothing has to make sense. Literally. But this article goes into kind of the life of the founders and what drove them to create one and they tried to get to the point of why we are obsessed and kind of under the spell of a literal grocery store I don't even know what we can liken it to here I was about to say I was like Whole Foods we don't really have that though no. maybe like Maloney's like no not even uh, we don't, I don't think we really have anything like it here no some people are super culty about like Harris Farms but that's I like feel it. like it's probably like very I feel like it's probably very Byron. I feel like I can liken it more to like a place and a lifestyle rather than another brand. I feel like it's like if it was here, it would be in Bondi. It would be so Bondi and everyone in Bondi would be freaking out about it. They'd love it. Anywhere where like reason is optional, like logic takes a backseat to like aesthetics. Yeah, real life is suspended. That kind of vibe. I really enjoyed this piece. It's like quite long, but it was relatively scathing. It mocked the grocery store, but at the same time it was going, but why are we so intrigued by this literal shop? It was such, it was so thorough, like the investigation, like it was just going all the way back through the history of when it was sort of this like weird alternative lifestyle, like rather than just a brand. One part that stuck with me was it goes into the meaning behind the name and it's an anagram for nowhere which is based on an 1872 novel of the same name by Samuel Butler, where sick people are basically treated like criminals. So they'll like hide their illnesses, like doctors are illegal. But the grocery store says that Erewhon is a utopia in which individuals are responsible for their own health, which the cut Mm. likens to describing Orwell's Oceania, as in the setting of 1984, as a utopia in which individuals are responsible for their own information security. I thought that was quite cutting. And the author just says, could it be that America's buzziest grocery store, its wellness mecca, was named in honour of the idea of incarcerating sick people and no one noticed? You know, you know that like morally you're not in a great place if someone's likening something that you've done to like 1984. And maybe we don't take our business names from dystopian novels yeah I think did you did you ever watch you the tv show on Netflix yes yeah so they had like a grocery store in the 
second season, I think, that What's a Face, the um, love. love interest worked at. Literally, her name is Love. Uh, but it was called A Navarin and it was Nirvana backwards. And that was supposed to be like a take on Erewhon, I think. Yeah. And like making fun of it. It was very like pretentious. Yeah. Pretentious is the word. Like I it, honestly, the article just sort of made me want to go and get a smoothie. Like I want to try the Hayley Bieber. Hayley Bieber did like a collaboration with them for this. What was it? Like strawberry glazed smoothie thing. Yeah. It's kind of like a milkshake really but with fancy ingredients. Like with collagen and like sea moss. Sea moss, yes. I was like, what's the weird thing they put in the sea moss? I feel very interested in like the superfood industry or like the health wellness industry because yeah. not because I think it's good, but I think it's very deceptive and exploitative and ridiculous. And my first ever job was in a salad shop. Back when chia seeds oh, and quinoa kind of entered the mainstream. Oh so this God. was like I 2013. Remember when quinoa became a thing. Yeah. And it was everywhere all of a sudden. And I had to be the one explaining how to pronounce it. They were touted as like cure-alls. They would fix all of life's problems. Come and get them in your salad. And I thought it was like a little bit ridiculous. But people came in droves for these hard to pronounce seedy things. You've been on the front line. Been on the front line. I love that we're at a point now where we can go, oh, this is all a little bit weird and a little bit funny. Yeah. And it sit right with us. So anyway. Maybe let's have a critical think about that. I did enjoy this piece. So definitely recommend that. What has your week? What have you been doing? My flatmate, flatmate Tom, has gone to Vietnam. So I thought it's perfect time as I'm home alone to start a new period drama series because I think I've period drama Tom out oh. uh, with watching too many. So I've started watching this new series called The Buccaneers, which is on Apple TV Plus, which I forgot that I have a subscription to. But we're back, baby. We're so back on Apple TV Plus uh, now that The Buccaneers is on there. So this is an adaptation of Edith Wharton's last novel and Edith Wharton wrote The Age of Innocence very much like Gilded Age girly Uh. writing about the social like foibles of New York and that sort of gentry I guess not gentry but like the top of the top yeah of um of New York and the Americans rich society and so she wrote this book called The Buccaneers she didn't finish it because uh she died beforehand but it's basically yeah but it's basically it follows five American girls, young American girls. I say girls because they're literally like 17 who go over to London for the social season to basically bag a husband. So there's five of them. One of them, Conchita, is engaged in the first episode, in the first scene, not a spoiler, to an American lord. And then they get married and then the lord invites her and her four bridesmaids to London for the, for the season, essentially. If you don't know what the season is, I can't help you and you shouldn't be here and just go and Google it and watch Bridgerton, please. And so it basically follows this main character called Nan. Her name is actually Annabelle, but we have to call her Nan. Um, And she basically starts off the series being like, I was never supposed to be the main character. So of course she's supposed to be the main character. And she's like the unassuming younger girl. And she um, suddenly kind of finds herself in a love triangle with this kind of wet blanket of a guy, Guy Thwaite, who learns a secret about her. And then there's this other like super hot Duke 
whose name is Theo, and she's sort of torn between the two of them. And there's Taylor Swift music, girly friendship, and lovely gowns, and excellent uh, cinematography. And Christina Hendricks from Mad Men is in it, and a bunch of other people that I recognized. I love Christina Hendricks. Yeah, she's great. She's Nan's mother, who they've kind of come up in society, but they're still kind of looked down upon in New York by the older money but then they're hated in an, in England because they're only seen as means to an end financially so it's sort of this really interesting um I mean obviously back in the day marriage was always a financial transaction which is like horrible to think about but in this it really is because it really goes into the concept of um that's been really well documented historically of the dollar princesses um at the turn of the century where a lot of the English aristocracy were crumbling they didn't have enough money to fix all of their estates and so they decided to marry off their sons to these young American girls whose families were flush with cash and it um, most notably happened with one of the Vanderbelts, Consuelo Vanderbelt. She married one of the Spencer Churchills who's actually like a descendant of Winston Churchill and I read a really interesting book about the Dollar Princesses and other women who've kind of like been married off historically called the heiresses. I can't remember who it's by, but it's really interesting. So I watched The Buccaneers with like Taylor Swift and there's like the trailer is set to Olivia Rodrigo. So oh, it really gives cool. you a sense of... Sounds very Bridgerton-ish. Yeah, it's Bridgerton, but probably more American, cool. like Americanized, even though yeah. it's done by an English showrunner. But it's interesting to see like, I read a review of it talking about like the Americans basically like invading... England these younger girls and you know shocking the aristocracy and whatever and it was very much like this is basically what Meghan Markle did this is like the Meghan Markle story and instantly (laughs) I was like yeah but I don't like Meghan and I like all of these girls they're just girls being girls and hot hotties and I feel like I'm gonna end up on the wrong side of this love triangle I really I think that the guy that I'm rooting for I don't know what's gonna happen there and I'm concerned I'm never on the wrong side of a love triangle is it like a week by week episodes there are three episodes already out I've already watched the first three that's good it kind of leaves you in suspense but yeah it's very much like if you like Bridgerton if you like Sanderton if you like the Gilded Age if you like those historical things this is one for you this is huge for those girls let's get into it with some very very big news the Hollywood strike is over babe it's Dunzo. The strike is done after 118 days, the longest actor's strike in history, well, in Hollywood history. They fought for better pay, uh, residuals, and a lot to do with AI. And this is just super exciting. So Fran Drescher is the president of the SAG-AFTRA union. And yeah, they said back in June that as we're kind of reaching an unprecedented inflection point for the industry, it's time that the wages, the craft, like their creative freedom has been undermined and they need to reverse those trajectories. They need a realignment basically of minimum pay and media residuals based on the changing media landscape, all of the things with streaming. And they've come to an agreement with the studios and the new contract has been approved with an 86 approval vote. Now they're just sending it to membership for ratification, but that's basically like just a formality. It's, yeah, it's, it's through. It's, it's been done. approved. The full details of the contract will be distributed this week. They like there's been reports about it, but um, it's not all been like we don't have like the official paperwork yet. But the deal has included a seven percent raise. They've got an eleven percent raise for eleven percent sorry increase for background actors who will see their daily rate rise from one hundred eighty seven dollars to two hundred seven dollars. The deal also includes the first increases 
in um, contribution caps for the pension and health plan in 40 years, which is insane. Uh, AI protections are in there. I don't know the specifics for this. I read that it said the members will not be duplicated or synthesized in any way without consent or compensation. So what what do you know? Fran Drescher said AI safeguards is still something they'll have to closely monitor in terms of Mm. like recreation consent and compensation, but they got everything else that they wanted. So one of the requirements was that if a studio used any feature of a real life person, what they're calling a digital Frankenstein. So if you take like Margot Robbie's mouth, they must get permission from that person or their estate and it must be very specific in the contract. So they must say we are using it for this project. There was previously a loophole where with actors who have already passed, their likeness can't be used in commercial endorsements, but they could still be used in movies or TV, which means that yeah. a digital actor can be used in like a biopic without the, without anyone's permission, without the estate's permission. Oh, I thought you still had to get the estate's permission. I feel like I've seen movies where like Marlon Brando has been used, but I thought would have thought they would have had to get the estate. Probably good practice. Yeah, but not neat, not 100% like. It's not enforced. Not enforced. So they've pushed that point through and they won that, which is good. But one of the points that they didn't really draw a conclusion on with AI would be how it's trained. So machine learning relies on like real data or in this case, like real performances or examples of actors to influence any results Mm. that it can create. So this was one of the biggest issues because AI could spit out like a new actor or a entirely new performance, but it's still right. taken parts of real actors' performances to oh, generate that result. To, right. Yeah, so okay. they didn't reach a conclusion on that, but that's just something that they'll have to keep monitoring. Yeah, and the deal also included, and I've seen a lot about this on Instagram, um, that included for self-taped auditions, there's a limit for scenes to be eight pages. And then once you get a call back, it increases to 12 pages and actors must get their script pages at least 48 hours before the submission deadline because there was a lot going on with, I don't know if you follow the actress, Sarah Ramos. She was posting pre the strike, but she was, she's been doing a lot of union work talking about um, all of the work that she would put into her self-tape auditions and things that she would do all unpaid. And then she would just get rejected or not hear back. And it was like, all of these processes that weren't covered and she was like this needs to be covered in the studios like in the union system and they've they've got that now which is fantastic and um there are also provisions that have gone into hair and makeup for diverse performers and intimacy coordinators for scenes involving nudity or simulated sex which is incredibly important yeah super bare minimum stuff but not enforced legally wow until now but I want to talk a little bit about why and I think we should discuss Fran Drescher obviously everyone I think mainly knows her for her astounding wonderful work as Fran Fine on The Nanny but so she's the president of ZAG after her and she's been covered in the media a lot obviously since she's the president but the way that she's been covered in her leadership style has been really really interesting to talk about and hear about so when she became president I think there was quite a big hoo-ha a few years ago I remember reading about it between herself and randomly Matthew Modine who plays the evil doctor in Stranger Things he was on the other ticket for the presidency and he lost but I remember there was a big hoo-ha about it um but she's now the president and 
she has quoted Buddhist teachings in her negotiation style. She brought a plushy toy to one of the negotiations with the studio heads. And I think much has been made of her kind of, for lack of a better word, like kookiness, I think. But it feels quite gendered. It feels like we're questioning her authority quite a bit. Yeah. And also, like, she got it done. She got it done. She's done it. So she said she was interviewed um, by The Hollywood Reporter post-strike. And she said, I'm a very authentic person. And I think they were disarmed by the fact that I wasn't playing a corporate game and I wasn't trying to emulate masculine energy. And I think the typical attempts to discredit the women in, women in leadership did not work because I turned it into a woman and girls empowerment movement that says I don't have to emulate male energy I can lead with intellect and empathy and compassion and morality and I can be me and I can still rock a red lip and I think that's very liberating for women because that's the lowest hanging fruit nobody ever discussed Duncan who's one of the other lead negotiators Um, nobody ever discussed Duncan on those terms so I had to turn on its head and make it an empowerment thing and she said I hope that by example I'm showing the women and girls out there that my that are my fans that they can lead and they can still be exactly who they are and not apologize for it which I think is so great if she was just quoting Buddhist stuff and being weird and random and not actually fighting for the rights of the people that she's representing, I would be concerned. But she's always gone in there being like, I am prioritizing the thousands and thousands of people who I'm representing. And I think there were a lot of reports, which this did happen, like that a lot of um, A-list stars went into like Zoom crisis meetings with the studios. People like George Clooney, Matt Damon, Maybe not Matt Damon. It was um, George Clooney, Ben Affleck, Reese Witherspoon, some other people. And I felt like the reporting of that was like, oh, Fran can't take it. So the big guns are taking over. That's what it felt like to me. And she said in her interview with The Hollywood Reporter, she talked about like that happening and, and that it was actually really helpful for the A-listers to, to come in because they were doing a lot of back channeling, calling through their own connections to the CEO level of the studio system. Um, and it, especially like in the 12th hour, the back channeling was being done on the final part of the AI yeah. discussions. So they were, I think they were really helpful in that way and probably a lot more palatable to the studios because they're bigger names. And it's like, if you're getting a call from George Clooney versus like someone else, it was great to hear that George Clooney apparently said to her, I would have bet my house and lost it, that you would never have been able to get more than over a billion dollars with this deal. And she's done it. She's gotten over a billion dollars. But yeah, like I think, and I, but I kind of loved her because as she said, she didn't really play the corporate game. Like her, when she called Bob Iger, the CEO of (laughs) Disney, she called him an ignoramus. Good. Thank you. Thank you, Fran. Because other people would be too scared to do that. And I also think she has nothing, not as much. I mean, maybe this is a bit of a controversial point, but I don't think she has as much to lose because I think there are people who are higher up in terms of like what they want to be doing and like in terms of their star power that I don't think would come out swinging like that. Whereas like she's, you know, she's not winning Oscars. Let's put it that way. So she kind of has more free will to be like, well, he's a dickhead. It doesn't impact her career as much. Also lots of younger actors who simply can't take that risk. Unfortunately, they can't take no, that risk and speak it, out. Yeah. That's a better way of putting it. She's able to take those risks. Yeah. Whereas other people aren't. And like, you, they can all agree, but they can't say it out loud. Yeah. And they can have those conversations behind closed doors, but they can't do what she did. And they can't no, do, she it can't as do it in a well press as she conference. Did. I'm impressed. <laughs> Me too. And her first speech that she did was so fantastic. And I got chills and I watched the whole thing. It went for quite a long time, actually. I felt like it was a real call out to everybody to be like, you won't be abandoned. We're going to do what we can. We're going to do the best that we can for everybody. And they really achieved that. And it was really like... We're at, they're at a turning point in the industry and we really have to now's the time to fight and they're going to be checking in with the with the studios and everything um 
twice a year to make sure that their finger remains on the pulse of progress, as she said. But yeah, she said they got everything with the AI protections, which I think for everybody, particularly with the riders as well, that was such a concern. I feel like it's all come at a really interesting juncture because we've come out of a pandemic, which threw a lot of creative fields and the entertainment industry into complete disarray. And then we've, we're also in the midst of an, I don't want to say an AI crisis, but there is a lot of... I think it's definitely getting there. Yeah, lots of nerves around technology. So it's come at this point where there are lots of issues that we need to be at least a little bit proactive about. Yeah. Whereas if they were negotiating this contract three years ago, I think they wouldn't prioritize the same issues. So really oh, interesting I re- that this I is happening now. Completely. But do you remember last year when we were all roasting Sydney Sweeney for saying that like she couldn't take time off work? That she couldn't afford it. Hated that everyone roasted her. I thought that that was one of the most honest things I've seen in a celebrity profile in so long. And I hate that everyone got mad at her. It really got me. I'm glad that you brought this up, actually. We all just jumped on her because we went, oh, well, we can't take months off work either. Forgetting that it is still, they are part of a gig economy. And the fact that someone who is in one of the biggest TV shows of the year, two of the biggest TV shows of the year, and in huge blockbuster movies yeah. simply can't afford to live and work mm. in the area that she needs to live and work in and she needs to take brand deals to supplement her income and now we're all realizing that streaming services and Hollywood has changed so much yeah I think it was really fair of her to speak out about that and especially when you're a young person mm. in Hollywood as she is people are very fickle you have you there really is and there shouldn't be there really is a sort of time limit on how you can make your impact, how lasting that impact can be. She's obviously made a very good impact because she's in, as you said, two of the biggest shows on HBO. She was in The White Lotus and she's in Euphoria. She's now made the jump to the big screen. She's going to be in that fantastic rom-com that we need to discuss when it comes out. Um, But I think, yeah, but she was being truthful. I I found it very refreshing and also incredibly depressing, but I think it was an actual important look at what it takes to be a famous person in Hollywood as a on the rise to finish off yay we're back the strike's over baby and everyone's getting back to work the amount of Instagram posts I've seen about people like finally promoting their work is hilarious and it's just very exciting and like trailers gonna be coming out like all of these new things I've seen a lot of memes being like we need 50 for the BuzzFeed puppies quiz we need this for that we need actors on actors we need all of them on Fallon all of them on Kimmel and I think that's what's gonna be happening speaking of exciting news the Met Gala theme and the coinciding exhibition have been announced for next year so it's called Sleeping Beauties Reawakening Fashion and the intention is to kind of truly appreciate the garments. So what these celebrities are going to be wearing to the Met Gala next year, more so than making a spectacle. So we can hopefully expect lots of archival looks and recreations or homages to famous designs. Everything that is truly fashion. I'm so excited. I'm so excited. I'm so excited. I love the Met Gala. It's the best day of the year. It's an Andrew Bolton who, um, what is he like, the head curator? The curator, yeah. He explained that the exhibition will be structured around um, 15 historically significant and aesthetic pieces from the Costume Institute's permanent collection that are too fragile to be ever worn again. 
So instead of fulfilling their original worn function, the, these pieces will instead be transformed throughout the display. So this includes an Elizabethan bodice and a silk satin ball gown uh, by the American couturier Charles Frederick Worth from 1887. This was the show's original inspiration. And the exhibition will be shaped around three main zones, land, sky and sea. And it will trace the evolving attitudes to the natural world through craft and the manipulation of natural materials which is, I'm so hyped. I want to see the Elizabethan bodice. And then it's like other acquisitions from like Philip Lim, Stella McCartney, Connor Ives. It's going to be 400 years. I think they're spanning 400 years of history and other designs by like Scaparelli, YSL, Dior, Givenchy. I'm so excited to see how stylists interpret that theme. We don't know the dress code yet. They usually give like a couple of words or a phrase to guide Mm. stylists and designers. But I'm excited to see how they actually take it back to what fashion is and what a gala should look like. Well, so this is what I want to talk to you about. What do you think this is going to be like? How would you, A, how would you interpret it? And how do you think people will overall interpret it? Obviously, there are always random outliers who look like they're at a completely different event. But like, what do you make of this? What are you thinking? What's your vibe? I don't want to see strictly archival pools like I don't want to see people Mm. just taking a look from say uh, an 80s or couture runway and putting that on celebrity yeah and I'm also worried that there will be some of the gimmicky designers that take the sleeping beauty concept seriously yeah I hope that they don't do that I do love that vibe but I don't I think it's a bit literal and stupid and simple it is and i think they think watch watch carla welch do it yeah watch carla welch do it our enemy i didn't enjoy this year's carla lagerfeld theme and i didn't enjoy last year's america a lexicon oh the gilded age one didn't like it because i just don't think people knew what to do i mean yeah it's because they're being led by designers and they've and they all have it's like contracted and a lot more regimented and I think, than we really know about. It's weird. This one also is slightly similar to the 2020 theme, which the exhibition ran, but we didn't see the Met Gala that year. Oh, the time. The yeah, about time. time. I was, I'm still so upset that we didn't see that because I think that would have been actually fantastic. I'm wondering if some designers have been sitting on ideas since then or they started something and they can use it now because they're kind of speaking about the entire history of fashion. Oh, I hope so. That's a really good point. So that'll be super interesting. But what are your thoughts? Are you? I think what do you well, immediately my, my mind went, as it so often does actually, when I read the part of when it said that it's um, too fragile to ever be worn again, my mind immediately went to a sort of uh, Miss Havisham vibe. If no one knows who Miss Havisham is, again, like, I don't know what to tell you. She's this sort of like unhinged character from the Charles Dickens novel, Great Expectations. And she's this older woman who's wearing her wedding dress because she got jilted on her wedding day. And she's sat in the same room for like 40 years wearing her wedding dress that some decays around her. And she stops all the clocks and everything at the time that she was jilted. And she's sort of living in this time capsule but it she's always pictured in these adaptations wearing the wispy wedding dress that's kind of rotting away and stuff and now in my mind I was like oh Miss Havisham like I was thinking I was thinking like delicate wispy fragile I thought of the Prada those wispy Prada 
dresses that we saw this year, but sort of more dramatic historical pieces was sort of my take on it, but sort of deconstructed kind of McQueen-esque, I would imagine. quite ethereal. Uh, Yeah, I was thinking like ethereal Miss Havisham, Wuthering Heights, 19th century vibe. We'll post a picture of, um, I feel like Gillian Anderson for me personally did the best Miss Havisham. There have been Helen Bonham Carter did did it. Yeah, that's who else did. Um, Olivia Olivia Coleman. But I always think of Gillian Anderson also because she's like way too hot to be Miss Havisham. I wouldn't gel her. What are your favorite past Met Gala looks? Oh my god, thank you for asking, Emily. For opening a can um, of worms. No, so many. For me, like personally, the Met Gala has been like the most important day of my year, other than like Christmas Day and my birthday. It's like top, top three. But I, I honestly think that it's I should take the day off from work every year because like I find it so stressful being in an office environment while this event is going on and having to like be chill and do work. So my favorites have been camp. Yeah. The Gilded Age one. So Amer- in America, an anthology of fashion. And I have a real soft spot for Manus Ex Machina fashion in an age of technology because of specifically because of one dress, Claire Danes. I was about to say Claire dress. Danes. Glowing. Yeah, it's yep. the Claire Danes dress for me. But my favorite... And the one that is the closest to my heart is Heavenly Bodies, Fashion and the Catholic Imagination. And I personally put that down to 13 years of Catholic education. Oh. Um, <laughs> but yeah. I think the creativity came out that year. There were works of art. Don't actually think I could choose a favorite look. There's so many. Because usually I feel like I can think of like a top three, which is what I usually do with like my fashion police. But that year, I think that was actually before I'd started doing fashion police. I think camp was the first time I did that. But Heavenly Bodies, for me, was very, like, actually emotional because I just thought the artistry that went into those looks was beautiful. I still think about Zendaya as Joan of Arc. I think about Ariana Grande in that gorgeous, like, big dress that was, what was it, like, Michelangelo. Madonna looked amazing. Uh, Who else? Chadwick Boseman. Yeah. That springs to my mind as well. And Blake Lively obviously Lana Del Rey and Gucci like I found that year to be very compelling what about you I think I agree with your ranking I have individual looks from other years that I love but heavenly bodies as a theme was truly special I hate when the men rock up in really boring suits don't talk to me about it go to a funeral if you want to go to a funeral wear an outfit yeah I think the only time that I've accepted a boring outfit was I think it was Bradley Cooper I think it might have been last year and he looked so good I had to respect it it's the only only time that I've been like okay it's not life-changing but I really like it I did really enjoy Bad Bunny's Jacquemus look from this year I like that it was kind of just a plain white suit but then the sleeves were grand and beautiful and but then he turned around yeah a little slutty back gorgeous yeah I I think when guys get it right they get it right like I also controversial liked Timothy Chalamet's look the year that he was chair the converse is I could have done without, but I did like the white look with that sort of double-breasted cropped jacket that looked very much like he was in a sort of a 19th century portrait of this like guy about to go off to war or something. I feel like he's got one of those historical faces. What about your favorite female looks? The Claire Danes Manus Ex Machina one is really up there for me personally. I love Blake Lively's dress at the Catholic Imagination one. I thought that was great. I also liked it at the American one where she's like 
was like the Statue of Liberty with the patina. And it changed colours. Is that that one? That was nice, I thought. There have just been a lot for me, actually. I love everyone who wore Tom Brown this year. I thought it was really fantastic. Tom Brown hits every time. Tom Brown does hit. And I also think, unpopular opinion, because I know neither of us particularly like her, but I did love Kendall Jenner's My Fair Lady look. She does do the Met Gala well. One of my favorite looks of all time is probably the Calvin Klein green dress with the lace-up sides. That was so simple. I thought for a second you were going to say the one where she wore all white that year and she had those ratty extensions and I was about to be like, I don't think we can keep doing this if you say that. (laughs) Okay, that's it. Now done. Bye. (laughs) You're done. The Kim Kardashian, Terry Mugler look, the wet look. The detail was incredible. The detail now. And I loved when Billie Eilish did her big reveal as the Marilyn Monroe sort of energy. I thought that was really great. And like a, a moment, I felt that was a moment on par with the Lady Gaga camp entrance. But now that now I'm just looking at it and there are so many and I know I've forgotten a bunch that I, I really do like, but I think those are the ones that spring into my mind. I love any share look ever. They're like more historical looks. Yeah. Yeah. But in the 70s, she did like the blueprint naked dress and it's that one. Yes. With like the furry feathery sleeves oh and God. hem and it's like. So no more, I know exactly which one you mean. It was designed by Bob Mackie, who designed Marilyn Monroe's Happy Birthday, Mr. President dress, which was obviously worn by Kim last year, this year. But more importantly, it was worn by Marilyn. <laughs> he, yeah, he can do no wrong. I feel like we need to do just a content warning because the next topic is a bit rough. And if you don't feel like, or you just don't have the emotional bandwidth to hear accounts of racism and anti-semitism by Kanye West just skip maybe 10 minutes save yourself the New York Times recently published an article called Kanye and Adidas money misconduct and the price of appeasement where Megan Tui one of the journalists who broke the Harvey Weinstein story looked into the very spotted collaboration between Kanye West now yay and Adidas so as a refresher that partnership generated billions of dollars over 10 years and more than 250 shoe designs. But it ended just last October when Ye made awful anti-Semitic comments and publicly disparaged the Black Lives Matter movement amongst other awful, heinous, offensive actions. If you're listening and thinking, I don't care about Kanye West and I don't care about sneakers, neither. But this collaboration genuinely changed how celebrity endorsements and celebrity partnerships work in fashion and it was hugely influential in a cultural sense it's so much more like i so much more than just shoes and celebrity like i didn't realize that his first contract with adidas in 2013 had the most generous terms that they'd ever offered to a non-athlete which i think just says enough because athletes are offered so much money for these kind of collaborations and if he's getting offered like that same amount and he's not on that level that's insane to me exactly and it's the reason that yay was a billionaire really i didn't know that okay had they seen their contract out his work with adidas would have out earned his work as a music producer which is huge because that's worth a lot it's the reason that adidas 
found its footing in America. Originally, Adidas, this was back in like 2010 before they started the collaboration, Adidas had an 8% market share considering sneakers and similar sporting goods, whereas Nike had 50%. I was about to say, was the other rat in the race Exactly. Okay. I mean, rat in the race, horse in the race, I mean, God. They're all rats. It's hugely influential and actually really important to speak about. So... Basically, the article just looks at how much Adidas put up with behind the scenes because obviously we saw Ye doing very questionable things yep. in the public. He still still is. This is just the start of, I think, his behavior, but yeah. And Adidas just seemed to put up with it. And it's the piece itself is almost 8,000 words long. So it's a hefty read, but it's well worth it. And The Daily just did an episode with Megan Tui about it, if you're more orally mm. inclined. But Megan obtained hundreds of previously undisclosed internal records and that's texts, emails, messages between staff members. And she also interviewed current and former employees of both Adidas and oh, wow. Yay. And there are some hideous revelations. So if there's one thing Megan's going to do, it's going to get the evidence. She's going to get the evidence. She's going to oh find God, I what I love Megan Tui so much. So the piece sets the scene by reflecting on one of the earliest meetings between Adidas and Ye, like one of the very first ones where he wasn't impressed with the designs that they brought to the table just to show you, here's what we're thinking, here's our mood board, what do you think? And to show his distaste, he took one of the sketches and just drew a swastika on it. Uh, And for context, this was in Germany at the time and he later demanded that a Jewish manager at the company kiss a picture of Hitler every day. Oh my God. And told others that he'd recently paid a seven figure settlement to one of his own employees who accused him of repeatedly praising what? Hitler. So that's kind of the running theme that started from the get go. Like this pro Nazi or pro Hitler, I guess. Hitler admiration. Yeah, which is a sensitive spot for Adidas because it was founded by a member of the Nazi party. Was it? I didn't know that. It was just post-World War II. So they've been trying, they've wanted to distance themselves from that, obviously. You're not kidding, crikey. Yay, didn't help. And then he also said that, isn't it that he he said he admired Hitler's command of propaganda? What do you say to that? No, and he, he said that he has the belief that Jews have special powers allowing them to amass money and influence, which is such a like old theory it people so many like people who believe in like the deep state and like things like that are like the world is being controlled by the jews they run all the banks all of these things da, 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 da. they run hollywood they run this they run that it's like he's just espousing these horrible theories these conspiracies that have no footing in reality QAnon, 4chan stuff that people who voted for trump constantly espouse So Adidas is aware of his views from the get-go, basically. He's made it very well known. But it's also revealed in the investigation that Ye made executives of the company watch porn during a meeting at his Manhattan apartment under the guise of sparking creativity. He said that? He said that. So employees also frequently made complaints that... Yay made sexually crude comments at runway presentations and just in design meetings. So he also frequently had outbursts at executives on the collaboration, but 
they would basically just bend to his whims because the partnership was so profitable, despite the fact that he was physically and verbally abusive. He would throw shoes and he would literally charge at people in meetings. So this is a 10-year partnership and this has wow. all happened in the first the first few years. So they basically just kept battling through, insisting that he was simply bringing them products and nothing else. Like they were trying to distance themselves from what he was actually saying. Mm. But internally, they had a group dedicated to dealing with him and they would rotate people out to protect them from harm. Oh my God. They also assigned an HR person to this group, specifically looking after these people dealing with Yay, ensuring that they all had a free subscription to a meditation app. Oh, that would nice. basically do group therapy. That'll help. Can you imagine being the HR rep for that though? Can you imagine? The the fire storms that you would walk into every single day. Oh my god. It'd be like that meme of the, you know, um, like in community when Donald Glover opens the door and with the pizza and everything's on fire. It's that. It'd it's be exactly like that. that. Yeah. Every single day. Basically like beyond words, I've got to be totally honest with you. It's so bizarre. I can't imagine working in a company where they're going, No, 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 but we need him, we need him, we need him. And one of his problems was that he would keep coming back and wanting more control and more money from the collaboration because he has always been sartorially inclined. He's always wanted to design his own things. He's always wanted to explore that side. And Adidas was the only collaboration where he had the control to do that. He wasn't just putting his name on a product, but once he's gotten that control, he's just kept pushing it. And he, he made comments where he wanted to be Adidas CEO and he would basically just ask for more money, like $100 million annually on top of royalties compared to the original deal, which was royalties and then a guaranteed $3 million. So It's just like sort of beyond ridiculous. Huge money. And it was an incredibly lucrative collab, but he realized that they would give him basically anything he wanted and added us texts and emails that – Megan Tui uncovered showed that they wanted to prove that they valued him in quotation marks and rec- and show that they recognized his impact by just giving him more money and slinging him more checks. It's just like, is this the corporate, is this really like the corporate strategy that one of the biggest companies in the world is using? Just bending exactly. to the whims of this guy? Just throwing him money and making sure that their employees have a meditation app because he's that difficult. We're not in the room. It would have been so difficult when you're thinking about the future of a company, financial direction, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it's like, is really when you have all of these people and millions of dollars committed, make, like just throwing money at him is the best thing. Is that what you've got? Is that, is that really you what you've do? got? Like, is that what you're doing? Are we not having, is there not a crisis meeting? It sounds like there were lots of crisis meetings, but was there no other internal strategy that could come up other than just giving this guy what he wanted? Because you're creating a monster. Just feeding him again and again and again. And just the fact that this business is incredibly dependent on one person. Yeah, that too. It's like, isn't why, why are you putting all of your eggs in one basket? They did recognize how damaging the collaboration was back in 2016 when they were revising the, a new contract. Adidas wanted to add a, a morals clause, which would essentially let them end mm. the deal if Ye did anything to tarnish their reputation, which is very oh, okay. standard for celebrity partnerships. Like you don't want them to get on a TV and say something that's going to damage your brand. Yeah. 
But Makes sense. in these negotiations, Ye was represented by old mate Scooter Braun. Oh, you're kidding. Oh, why does that man pop up all the time? He's like a cockroach that just won't be killed. He's such a pest. But they were basically offended by the need for a morals clause. Like and Ye and Scooter were. Ye and Scooter. And oh my God. Scooter basically argued that the, the only way they could kind of enact that clause would be if he committed a criminal offence like shooting someone. Oh, my God. So what? he didn't understand why Adidas needed this. And he was just looking after Ye's interests, which weren't completely sound of mind. I think if you don't recognise the need for a morals clause or like morals generally, I'm concerned. And so they pushed through a morals clause and they had a couple of examples of when they could terminate the contract, which worked in their favour in the end. And the downfall of the partnership was just a couple of months after this contract. Back in 2016, they didn't terminate until last year. Wow. But a few months after signing that contract was when he began touring again. And that was with his floating stage show. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that. And he did a show in Sacramento where he went on a 17-minute tirade and he was too. ranting and praising Donald Trump and condemning the media. He badmouthed Beyonce and said that Jay-Z would send killers after him. Oh, my God. And he then – that was where he dropped the mic and cancelled the rest of his tour. So, in wow. the following week, he was hospitalised for mental health treatment. He went relatively quiet over the next – few months to like a year it was all okay on the adidas front and then he came back out and went back to making hugely controversial statements about slavery in the u.s being a choice oh yeah other awful things i remember that too so during this time adidas realized we need to safeguard our business we can't be relying on this incredibly unstable Man, I'm so Mental glad they realized this now. Yeah, I'm so glad they realized this. Yeah, this 10 incredibly years on. obvious thing. Oh, God. They started exploring other options like a collaboration with Beyonce, and they also started selling designs that were quite similar to Yeezy's because they owned the designs under the contract. Adidas owned okay. anything the final that Kanye had, anything that Ye had done, they owned exactly. Right. So they released like quite similar designs, and Ye went off again so he took to social media told others to boycott adidas he also ambushed execs at the adidas la office with a pornographic film about a woman wronged by her cheating boyfriend to show how upset he was oh that'll that'll, that'll show him you must be heartbroken he also told them our army is so prepared this is a different level of nuclear activity that no one will recover from oh my god And so he, in the following weeks, he went on a podcast and spread a bunch of conspiracy theories before saying, I can say anti-Semitic things and Adidas can't drop me. Now what? And then nine days later, Adidas dropped him. Well, I'm so pleased. Finally. Finally. Oh my God. I love that it took him saying they can't do anything, Adidas won't drop me, for them to then drop him. I'm like, oh, was all of the Nazi stuff not enough for you? Were the outbursts and throwing shoes at your employees not enough? Literally the throwing shoes. What? The the physical, like, harmful situation that you're putting your staff into wasn't enough. But the threat, the calling out of the company as being toothless, that was enough. And they went, oh, the public knows that we're just lying down and letting this guy 
walk all over us. Yeah, the cu- the pub probably already knew that because they hadn't dropped him before. Exactly. If they're Ridiculous. making money and they're and it, the collaboration did really really help to push them in the American market, as I said. So yeah, they were just looking after their own asses and going, no, 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 this is a good thing. This is a good thing. And it brought in billions of dollars and it still is. Even though the partnership ended last year, which immediately after Adidas reported its first annual loss in decades and Ye's net worth plummeted the day that they announced the severance. I cannot believe that it only ended last year. They pushed through the 2020 resurgence of Black Lives Matter. They pushed through all of the behind the scenes and just kept him on. After they terminated the contract, they still had $1.3 billion worth of Yeezy inventory. So they decided to sell the shoes and donate partial profits to charities. And they still have about $300 million worth of shoes left. And they're deciding whether they'll just write them off and wow. or whether they'll sell them and donate to organizations fighting anti-Semitism. And I have seen after the last drop, I saw someone on TikTok, they'd bought a pair of shoes and run into Pete Davidson in New York and oh got God. him to write skeet on them, which <laughs> I think is really funny. That is funny. You could sell that for a lot, I reckon. None of it is surprising because Ye no. has shown us time and time again what his values and thoughts are. Yeah. But it's yeah. the fact that... That he was violent behind the scenes and the business went, no, we need him. Yeah, that, I think that is damning. That is, and well, you know that when it's by Megan Tui as well, who is, even before Weinstein, was, you know, known for exposing these, this sorts of behavior in workplaces throughout America. Like she's done her homework. She's spoken to, as you said, people from Adidas and Yeezy and it's just like, Wow. I'm glad that people have spoken out about it. Like, I'm glad that she managed to get a lot of people to go on the record. She did try and get the Adidas execs at the time, but they, but she was unsuccessful, which Mm. isn't surprising at all. Yeah. But that is Adidas Yeezy news. That is really intense. I feel like I also am very, like, there was a part of the article that I read where he moved his easy operation to Cody in Wyoming when he had this whole thing a few years ago where he was like big up Wyoming and Kim and everyone was there all the time but he wanted the Adidas team to relocate and he used terms like believer and pilgrimage to describe those who would follow him there and he's very kind of culty. It, there's such a God complex. Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it because I feel like very – I always thought it was weird that he moved out there like in the middle of nowhere randomly. But And I thought it was, oh, he just hates LA. He's sick of that, you know, grind or whatever. But it's very weird, like such a God complex, very much like he's the center. He's – everything he says is all you need to hear. You don't need anyone else. And I feel like that with his current – I mean, I don't know what she is, wife, girlfriend – concubine woman being held against her will blink twice bianca bianca sensori i believe her last name is she's who's australian which wigs me out every time but that it's just like very something there's something very odd going on there i also wonder how much of a disservice adidas did because he Mm. was saying i want this i want this and they're going yep whatever have whatever you want they've created i don't think that would have 
helped yeah oh absolutely not i think it would have just made it worse again like a spoiled child you just get what you want this um this is a really weird segue but we're talking about oh i'm gonna be talking about and and this very interesting story that's popped up in the last few days about um australian king prince hugh jackman and before we get into the brian singer stuff here little bit of a trigger warning mentions of uh, sexual assault and abuse. So just be warned before you get into this section of the episode. And as we all, as people may know, he split, he and his wife, uh, Deborah Lee Finesse, split earlier this year. They've been together for about 27, 28 years, I believe. They first got together in 1995, 1996 on the set of an Australian crime show and they've been it's a long of, time to get to know someone yeah and they've been the kind of golden couple of australia alongside nicole and keith and you know the two other celebrities that we have and um so they split earlier this year uh and it was all very amicable all like we're committed to co-parenting our two children ava and oscar etc cetera, etc cetera. and he's been seen out and about a lot recently a lot of with blake lively and ryan reynolds because obviously um uh, Ryan and Hugh know each other through the X-Men universe, et cetera, et cetera. And they have this sort of like funny... But also if you want to generate good PR, hang out oh, with yeah. Blake and Ryan. Oh my God, no, 100%. Thank you for saying that. So I didn't have to. Absolutely. Like it's a, yeah, come on. We know what you're doing here. But so essentially what's happened is these reports have come in this week that Hugh Jackman wants Deborah, his wife, to sign an ironclad non-disclosure agreement in their divorce negotiations. Hugh is willing, allegedly, allegedly, this is all incredibly alleged, and I'll probably my every second word will be alleged to this story. So Hugh is allegedly willing to give Deborah as much as half of his $100 million fortune if she agrees to sign this NDA, which is aimed at preventing her from talking about their marriage in interviews, memoirs, or other media outlets. And I just think from the outset, anyone who aims to do that, it's odd, particularly after 27, 28 years of marriage, where you're purportedly the happiest couple in the world. I find it odd. It's not just, oh, you've seen three decades of each other's quirks. Like you just want to be safe because you have a real image and reputation drop hold. Yeah. No, you do no. not need an ironclad NDA. No, NDAs are for when for you have that. something to hide. Yes. So there are whispers that Hugh's first step after the split will be to write his own memoir with bombshells about his personal life. To me, that reads as he's trying to control the narrative. That's but Yeah, but also... and. Let me just put this out there as well. These claims were came through the National Enquirer through Radar Online. So the National Enquirer is obviously trash. Uh, they've also engaged in many catch and kill stories to bury practices where you kind of catch a story early and, and kill it. Um, they buried stories about Donald Trump during his presidential campaign. And they admitted to well, the parent company of the National Enquirer, Us Weekly and In Touch, they admitted to engaging in a journalist. Yeah, they've engaged in catching and killing stories. They paid $150,000 to a Playboy model, Karen McDougal, for the rights to her story about an alleged affair with Trump. They then intentionally suppressed the story until after the election. And Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon, also accused the National Enquirer of attempting to bribe him in 2019 with below-the-belt photos sent to his girlfriend. So they're not... They're not ideal. They're not great. We don't like the National Enquirer. And these are the people who have reported on this. So I think let's take it with a grain of salt. But I do think that there's something rotting in Denmark here to quote, to to paraphrase Hamlet, there's something rotting in Denmark. Um, And so that's, that's sort of the basis of what's happening. And then 
it's interesting to kind of deep dive into Hugh Jackman's life and associates based off of this information because everyone loves Hugh Jackman. He's the singing, dancing guy. Everyone loves The Greatest Showman. Not many, very many people liked Australia, but everyone loves him as Wolverine. Like he's one of the – like would you agree that he's like one of Australia's golden boys, golden men? I Yeah, I would say he is beloved. Yes, that is a perfect word to use. This news about the NDA – it's it's the Barbara Streisand effect. Have you heard of that? I have actually. I read about that today. Yeah. Yeah. You want to prevent information from getting out, but in doing so, you increase attention on that topic. Yeah. Yeah. And I which think, is what has happened. And I think he wants. Yeah. He wants. You know, for whatever reason, allegedly, to prevent Deborah from talking about certain things. But in doing that, yeah, he's created all this interest because he's such a like lovable and affable guy. Everyone's. You know, he's like. And I hate this. this. is one of the things I just hate about what we do as a country. He's our he's our Hugh, like our Nicole and our Kate, our Margaret. It's so annoying. Oh, Shut up. I hate it, and I used to have to write it in scripts, and I just I hate it so much. It's the it's the worst phrasing. I find it actually abhorrent and an insult. But see, but that's the thing. It's like we canonize these people particularly in Australia when they make it big in Hollywood. It's like oh they never forget where they came from. Bloody die. I'm like oh whatever, but. I didn't realize that Hugh Jackman is incredibly tight with both the Murdochs and the Kushners. That doesn't speak well to your character. No, and Just I don't. Quietly. No, it's very concerning. And he's one of the godparents of Rupert's youngest two daughters, Grace and Chloe. So he went to their baptism ceremony. Uh, which took place beside the River Jordan, where Jesus Christ was believed to have been baptized, according to Vanity Fair. Um. But yeah, he, Hugh says, this is from a 2013 Vanity Fair article, he, meaning Rupert, loves having friends and family around. A lot, of pe- a lot of people in his life are there for a long time. He looks after them and appreciates them. He's very caring and thoughtful and incredibly respectful of everybody around him. I mean, spare me. And he's really good mates with Jared and Ivanka. He defended his friendship with uh, Ivanka and Kushner. On two occasions previously, he said, I've known those guys for 15 years. He told Variety, we don't talk politics at birthday parties. And I'm like, okay, so you're mates with Rupert. You're mates with the Kushners. You're allegedly thinking about making your wife sign an NDA. Oh, your ex-wife, sorry. Sign an, soon to be ex-wife, sign an NDA. Makes sense then that nothing particular has ever come out that could be like information that could be considered NDA worthy if he's friends with Murdoch because Murdoch would just suppress it right yeah when you've got the king of tabloids on speed dial and not just as oh we went to a business dinner once together as your buddy yeah as your pal godfather of your two youngest children that's a bit like useful close chum handy oh right oh my god I know it's I've I've actually when I read that my blood kind of chilled I I it curdled imagine old rupee being your bff I mean, it's just an automatic like deal with the devil, isn't it? You just, you can't come back from that. And even when he's talking about the cushions, like we don't talk about politics at dinner. That's <gasps> the classic, like. It's like the Carly Kloss defense. Yeah. I'm just not like interested in politics. It's like, yeah, that doesn't detract from what they're doing. That doesn't yeah. absolve them of guilt. But Hugh also, there's 
this is getting a bit murky now. So this is all very, you know, actually, I'm sorry. A lot of this is not alleged. A lot of this is reported on and legitimate information, but Hugh's association with it is, is alleged. But obviously as Hugh Jackman came up to Americans, a lot of people know him primarily as Wolverine from the X-Men. So that was his first big film in America. If you don't count, you know, Kate and Leopold, the rom-com with uh, Hugh Jackman, which I personally do, but he came up to audiences as Wolverine. That's his big thing. He broke America with that. And there's a lot of reports over the years about the director of the original X-Men movie, the first three X-Men films, Brian Singer. And Brian Singer is not a very good man. That is not alleged. That is fact. And he, he is incredibly toxic, allegedly has sexually assaulted many young men he there were lots of um discussions around discussions around the toxic working environment on various sets of his films including all of the x-men films these claims include drug use tantrums a writer's feud along with an onset confrontation and a civil suit from one of the film's actors who claimed he was raped by three of singer's business associates there's also a very infamous story where all of the cast of the x-men film showed up in costume to confront singer and like force him off the set because they hated him so much oh my god like that's legit that's been reported on and yeah he's there's always been a lot of questions around brian singer there were sexual misconduct allegations that happened in 1997 on the set of this film apt pupil uh in 2017 he got fired from he originally directed bohemian rhapsody the queen biopic with um Rami Malek and he got fired off that set uh in 2017 the Hollywood Reporter broke that news then three days later a man filed a lawsuit against the director alleging that Singer had raped him in 2003 when he was 17 the day after that deadline Hollywood published an interview with a former boyfriend of Brian Singer's uh Brett Tyler Skopek which I remember reading at the time he described a lifestyle of drugs and orgies with Brian these allegations became so well known that 4,000 students, faculty members and alumni at the University of Southern California signed a petition asking USC to take Singer's name off one of its programs. They had a Brian Singer division of cinema and media studies, which the school did immediately after this guy, um, Cesar Sanchez Guzman, filed his suit. And then, and I think this just says it all, like one prominent actor said obviously under conditions of anonymity after the Harvey Weinstein news came out everybody thought that Brian Singer would be next but I say all of this all of this background information because Hugh has always been quite close with Brian Singer and allegedly and there have always been rumors about Hugh's personal life and the sort of state of his marriage and his sort of uh, where his affections lay and that's all I'll say on that uh, in those very vague terms, please no one sue me. It's all alleged. Um, but he's always been quite tight with Brian Singer. And Brian Singer has denied any association with all of these allegations. And he describes the journalists who reported on, on them as homophobic and targeting him because he is gay. And it's just that there's so much information out there about this. Like, I swear to God, there's articles in The Hollywood Reporter, in Variety, in The Atlantic, so Deadline, like so many. This has been reported on for years. And Hugh's always been quite close with him. So there's been a lot of questions around their friendship. And I, and I wonder, with this NDA, what Deborah knows about that 
I think that's got a lot to do with it. I think when I read this, my first thought was, oh my God, Brian Singer. Like that was my first thought. So I don't know. I sound like I'm in front of the wall, like in Always Sunny, I'm Charlie Day in front of the big thing with the memo board. Yeah, the memo board with the string everywhere. Like I haven't slept in, in three days, but there's a lot on the internet about this. There's a lot online about it. And if you like me are into blind items on the blind item website, Crazy Days and Nights, there's... There's always continuously over the years been blind items revealed about Hugh and Brian basically saying of, you know, Hugh says they're not friends anymore, but they are still friends. And th- this is one from September. Uh, and this is all alleged. This is you take it with a grain of salt. You don't know. But I guessed this one because it's all alleged, obviously. So it says this foreign born A plus list. Uh, actor is using his PR team to make himself look like a victim in his recent divorce. Maybe she will start talking about all of your friends and the parties. And that is allegedly Hugh, Deborah, Brian, and these parties because a Brian Singer likes very young men and they're very close and we, you know, we don't know, but I think it's very interesting. I am a firm believer in you are the company you keep. And there's that, there's that saying where it's like, show me your friends and I'll tell you who you are. That's so true, actually. Yeah. It's because it's consistent and it continues to happen. And he, it's not just one bad egg. It's oh my God, multiple no. people who are known for being not quite human, more slippery, nah. slithery monsters. I genuinely think that there's no other. I mean, there maybe there are like a couple, but there's no other group of like trio of people that's more unholy than the Kushners, the Murdochs. And Brian Singer. I'm like, what an unholy trinity. That like makes me want to go to like church. Yeah. I need like some holy water ASAP. Nightmare blunt rotation. Or like, a, or like a shower. Like even talking about it makes me feel a bit ill. The Brian Singer stuff very much not made up. Hugh's association with him. Do without what you will. It's there. I'm not making it up. Like it's, it's online. Think what about it. What does Deborah know? What does she know? After 27 years. How is he going to divert our attention with a memoir? Yeah. With big bombshells in quotes. Yeah. And I found that Hugh actually, because this is also like a bit of a random twist, but I, I stuck in my mind. I think it was the, a year ago, last year or the year before last, there was a big expose that happened in the Hollywood Reporter about another kind of horrible man of Hollywood, uh, Scott Rudin, who, if you think of a film in Hollywood, chances are he will have produced, he's produced one of my, well, like a lot of my favorite films and a lot of my just, you know, they're great classics, but he was kind of this like, horrible guy and he always said that he was one of the toughest like assholes in Hollywood like self-proclaimed and he was very big in Hollywood but also in the theater scene in New York and in the independent film scene in New York so he was he did a lot of extensive work with A24 and really fascinating insight but anyway but he had a lot to do with the theater as well and at that point in time he was doing the Music Man show with Sutton Foster and Hugh Jackman and a lot of people from that show spoke out being like, we're so sorry to hear about like the treatment that people have had at Scott's hand. Like this is terrible. Da 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 da. And Hugh Jackman didn't speak out. And I just remember looking at that. And I'm like, it doesn't cost you anything to come out against this. It's not costing you anything. You're always going to be Hugh Jackman. And then he did. And then he did put out a statement. But it was just like the delay was noticeable. Yeah, like Sutton. Yeah, Sutton Foster broke her silence first, saying it's an, an unbelievably unfortunate situation. And I know Hugh feels the exact same way and then 
like like then then he shared his own statement later but it was just like not an afterthought but I was like this is not so difficult for you to like it's not hard for you to put your hands up well obviously it is if he's like this is the company he's keeping but it's not difficult to come out against someone who's a bully when you're Hugh Jackman no because you are beloved and you can survive a lot of things like if you're part of the chorus understandable if you're Hugh Jackman not so understandable I just think that I don't know I thought of it stuck in my mind for a while out of all the horrible things in that article that stuck out to me but all left to bad taste as you say you are the company you keep and Hugh is just giving murky energy at the moment I don't like it there's a pattern here there's a trend. You can't deny that. Yes. When you see him out and about walking with Blake and Ryan, just think on this. Think on our conversation. I think it's important. But but um, not to end on a sour note, very, very quickly, Taylor Swift in South America. She's back on the Eras tour. We need to talk about this incredibly quickly. I can't believe we haven't talked about it yet. Travis Kelsey is there. I know we've talked a lot about Taylor recently, so we'll just keep this very quick. But she has been seen kissing Travis. We love a little PDA. And... And she changed the lyrics of Karma, one of the songs in the show, to she sings this bit. It's actually, I think it's the best line of the whole song uh, in Karma to, and I'm going to sing it because you, I can't speak it. It's uh, this lyric is um, Karma is the guy on the screen coming straight home to me. But then she changes it to <laughs> Karma is the guy on the sh- on the Chiefs. Karma is the guy on the Chiefs, as in. The team he plays for, Karma is the guy on the Chiefs coming straight home to me. And everyone clocked it because I saw about seven TikToks in a row on my feed. And then um, she ended the show by running off stage straight into Travis's arms and they made out and there's video footage and it's all over my Instagram as well. Thoughts, feelings, emotions. So sweet and genuine. I don't think this is PR anymore. I think maybe it started as PR. I think it's real now. I think she's in love. They seem really cute. I was like, it's PR. It's so PR. And I still kind of in the back of my mind, I'm like, I have a little like voice being like, it's PR, it's PR. But I do think I agree. I do agree that it's like, maybe it started out as PR, but now they're like, oh, you're cool. I'm cool. Let's like see where this goes. Because she's the biggest star in the world. He's an NFL player also at the top of his field, but like he's only gained positive like um coverage from this association and she's like the all-american girl she's like the popular girl at school dating the jock footballer like it's it's ideal for both of them but she also now she's back on tour her latest surprise songs have like actually stabbed me right in the gut she um did cornelia street one of my favorites in mexico city then the next day she did afterglow also a banger from lover but then she actually stabbed me in the face in Buenos Aires by doing the very first night, my favorite vault track from Red and Labyrinth, my favorite um, song on Midnight's other than in the deluxe album. My favorite song is then would have, could have, should have, but Labyrinth is my favorite from the main album tracks. And I just, I'm hurt. I'm excited for the episode that we do after you go and see her. Oh my God. Can you imagine? Cause I'm seeing her on the Friday and then we'll record like on the Monday. I'm thinking, can you just monologue that episode? I do yeah. a horsey monologue. I yeah, I feel like I'll sound really good. I'll sound like Emma Stone. Like when I listened to our episode last week, which was after I went to a wedding, I sounded quite like croaky, and I was like, "Damn, this is like, I sound good or not? I don't it's know, like husky and sexy." But we hope you enjoyed this week's episode. But yeah, thank you guys so much for coming along on the ride with us this week. 
enjoy. That really was a roller coaster. Lots it of, was. We we touched on a lot of things. Some very bad men out there. Yeah, just bad men doing bad shit. But we are the women, along with Megan Tui, who will expose them. Allegedly. So thank you so much for sticking with us this week. And uh, see you next time. That's all. Thanks for joining us. Bye. All right. Bye. Bye.